Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today I'm joined by my co-host Diana Clark and our esteemed guest, Jay Hughes. Jay, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm delighted to be here, Diana and Arden, and looking forward to chatting with you. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to try and give a brief version of your bio, um, and I'm going to read from it because the book titles are just phenomenal. So Jay is a resident of Aspen, Colorado. He is the author of Family Wealth, Keeping It in the Family, and of Family, the Compact Amongst Generations. And both of these were published by Bloomberg uh, Press. He's also the co-author with Susan Mazzino and Keith Whitaker of The Cycle of the Gift, Family Wealth and Wisdom, The Voice of the Rising Generation, and Complete Faith Wealth, all published by John Wiley and Sons. He is uh, also another co-author with another colleague, Hartley Goldstein and Keith Whitaker of Family Trust, A Guide to Trustees, Beneficiaries, Advisors, and Protectors. He's written numerous articles on family governance and wealth preservation, and has a series of reflections on his website. So Jay, I'm gonna start with what I call a softball question. Please tell us what the term family governance means and do all families need governance or where does it apply? Which types of families benefit most from family governance? Family governance comes down to us through the academic discipline of political philosophy. And political philosophy going all the way back to the Greeks is simply the question of how do you make good joint decisions? A family has to be two or more people. That's what Webster requires. And so you can't have any decision made by a family that isn't joint two or more people. That's what governance means. And every single family on the planet, every single day, does governance. It makes joint decisions. I think I've got it. I've got a harder ball question, okay? Mm -hmm. So as people live longer, including myself, I think, um, I hope, our the generation that has the power, has perhaps accrued the wealth, is living longer. So how do we encourage that generation to support the younger generation when they really are reluctant to do so? Uh, Diana, the subject of growing elders has occupied human communities <clears throat> for the 300,000 years of Homo sapiens existence. In earlier times, and I would say right down and through the 19th century. So earlier times, families understood the process of becoming clans and tribes or going extinct. And they know that if they cannot grow elders, they will go extinct. You need chiefs for peace. 
one of the problems in modernity is that we have lost touch with the process of growing elders. When Erickson, Joan, and Eric wrote their wonderful books on the stages of life, they were very clear about the eighth stage of life and the ninth, and very clear that wisdom is integrity as they defined it, which is what elders do, is our job in the eighth stage of life. I think it's quite tragic in modernity that so few families understand both the need for elders, how to grow elders, and then even more importantly, that the people who would become elders and gently move into the stage of life of being an elder, not an older, that's very important, miss that stage of life. So my suggestion, grow elders. And to the elders, like me, 79 years old in my 80th year, it's the best time of your life. Let the others make the doing, you do the being. Love that. It's, me too, me too. I'm just gonna follow up with one question related to that. So I'm in that younger, uh, that second generation, and I've got a family member who is highly resistant, you know, likes the concept, thinks they're living their best life, but is not really willing to accept um, the idea that they're going to pass on, let's say a family business at this point. Is there a way to sensitively have that conversation if you are that younger generation or are there watch outs that you should avoid? Well, I say two things. One, one of the questions that I like to ask all ages of people, but I think it's particularly apt for people uh, in the later stage of life is what are you aspiring to? Not what are you dreaming about? What are you aspiring to? Remarkably, very few people are aspiring to be, as we all know, longer in the office, but some are. And if that is that person's aspiration, then that's okay. So what I say to the younger generation members is, find out what that person is aspiring to, and then accept that as reality and work with it. Uh, you're not going to change people, you might evolve them. So that would be my answer, Arden. Find out what they aspire to and get about the, assisting them doing that. How's that? I love it. I love it. My follow-up question is around the pandemic. You know, how have you seen the pandemic redefine, or have you, I guess the question is, have you seen people redefine what legacy means based on the pandemic? What I think is that families have been rediscovering themselves during the pandemic uh, by choice or by necessity. That's quite remarkable because I think we could say pretty certainly with the social scientists that family as we have known it has disappeared. Multiple new forms of family have been existing in the last couple of generations. What the pandemic has done is ask people to actually get to know each other again, uh, sometimes far more intimately than they wished. But what I would say is that we are we do have a deeper experience of each other on a consistent basis than we have had for a very long time. Where that's going to go, Arden, I couldn't possibly guess. What I would suggest is that it will lead to better joint decision making. First question I was asked today, 
because people will know each other better. Not that it will necessarily lead to good decisions, but I think it will lead to better decisions than might have been before. So I want to extrapolate on that a little bit. In your book, you talk about generations finding their voice. Do you think the pandemic has, and that newfound intimacy potentially has helped a generation find its voice? Uh, Diana, what I would say is that in the course of many of the family conversations in my own family and those that I have been reported by other families to me, knowing each other better has, I think, offered an opportunity again to find out what we are aspiring to in a consistent basis. I also think that for the younger generations, uh, not those in uh, primary or secondary school, but those in college and those older, the pandemic, because of the working atmosphere has changed so fundamentally, have actually had an opportunity to think about their, their vocational aspiration. And by vocational, I'm not speaking to a vocational school as it's understood, but rather vocation as calling. What is it that one's work is in this world vocationally? And I think the pandemic has slowed down things so that the sort of short-term decisions that people made, they're not quite as quite making them a sh short term, if I can put it that way. They're moving according to the intermediate term. And they're asking, well, what if questions? In that sense, I think the pandemic has been quite helpful to people. So that would be my, my answer. So Jay, you know that the work that Diana and I are involved in often involves conflict of all sorts. Um, mostly in the behavioral health space. I'm curious about a different type of challenging family dynamic. Have you been involved in a family business where a family member had to be fired for some reason or another? And how have you navigated that as an advisor to families? It seems like quite a delicate dance to do. Arden, it's as difficult as anything we face. Um, because it raises, I'm going to make a bad pun, it raises the question of face. Mm. Uh, in the West, we don't think about face in quite the same depth that Easterners do. East, I'm speaking of Eastern uh, uh, countries, Asian countries. But taking a person's face is something we must consider very, very carefully before we do it. Because if we do take someone's face, they become a ghost. Mm. And ghosts are hungry. And they're very dangerous. They're dangerous to the person that is a ghost and they're dangerous to the family system of which they're a part. So I say to people, look, if, you, if firing is necessary and if the person doesn't really understand that it is the appropriate action then be very, very prudent about the question of taking face. And not to make something funny, uh, uh, but I do think that there is an important story, and this is a true story, by the way, of how this was handled. Um, 
a father and his son had this experience, and this is a true story. The father called the son at the office and said, I'd like you to come have lunch with me. And so the son said, fine. And there was a promotion coming in the company, and the son, who was really not competent, uh, believed he was going to get the promotion. So he came home and sat at the pool with his father having lunch. And the father had two hats, literally, two baseball hats. One said boss and one said dad. And after they talked a little while, the father put on the boss hat and he said, son, we're firing you from the company. Your mother and I discussed it and we are, we feel that this is not your place and you have not been performing properly. Then he took off his boss hat and he put on his dad hat. He gave him a hug and said, now that you're unemployed, your mom and I want to try to help you find a job that you'll really love. <laughs> I think it's absolutely what needs to take place. I love that. It is really embodying the word and. You can't continue to work here and we love you and we will help you. Yes, and that and so the son's face was not taken. The son was given re recollection that his most important role is son. Are you allowed to tell us whether that was your idea or the dad came up with that on his own? It's such a nice visual representation <laughs> of a concept. It was not my idea. It was another of the great people in our field who I won't uh, cite, not because I she wouldn't like it, but I might be wrong. <laughs> but I believe I know where I got the idea from, and the father loved it. And, it. and I have to say, the outcome for the son was very satisfactory. He was not in a situation where he could flourish. And instead, of course, what he did, if I could finish the story, is the father then said to him so wisely, look, why don't we bring in some really great specialists on how people find the work they love to do. And the son did that work, uh, pro-D to pro-discovery, and went on to find his place, and it's a very good outcome. It wouldn't always be a good outcome, but in this case, I love you, your mother and I love you, you're unemployed, how can we help you? The help was to go and find vocation that was really what he aspired to. That's a lovely story. I also have, I wonder, are there specific resources that you like to refer to when you are working with families of high net worth or ultra high net worth? What are the resources available to have these conversations? Well, if we think, Diana, of the journey of a family to get into the great book that Dennis Jaffe wrote, uh, borrowed from our grandchildren, you have to be in the third, halfway through the third generation to get into Dennis's book. It's the first book we have of success in the sense of avoiding the uh, three-generation proverb that is underlying or the law of entropy in our uh, universe. It underlies the process. It's a long journey. What I have said to families over many years now is once they decide that they aspire, that word I used before, uh, 
to grow their spiritual capital, one of their qualitative capitals, that is to become a great family and aspire to get into Dennis's book. The question I asked them, Diana, is all right, if you're going to grow your spiritual capital, your purpose, you have a common desire to, to go together on a long journey, to make those joint decisions together that we talked about earlier, what do you need to know about each other that you don't know? And they say, well, we think we know a lot about each other. I say, I bet you don't. <laughs> well, what do you mean, Mr. Hughes? Or Jay, that would be better. I said, well, let me make this suggestion to you as intellectually, because you need to grow your intellectual capital too, and your human capital, your own selves. Do you know how each other learns? What? Yeah. You're a wealthy people, you have all the resources in the world, but I bet you don't know how your grandchildren learn, or your children learn, or how even you learn. What are you talking about? I said, well, it's been known for a long time that we can find out how our brains are wired to learn. Really? Yeah, we can. Really? Yeah, and maybe your trustees would like to know how you learn so they can be in right relationship with you. Maybe your family office people would like to know how you learn so they can be in right relationship with you. Maybe your psychologist would like to know how you learn so they can be in right relationship. Oh, so what do I recommend, Diana? I've recommended for years that families do uh, a joint work together to understand how each other learns. So that when they're out on the journey to grow that great flourishing family, they know who needs to bring a map, who sort of knows where they are in nature, who reads, who makes pictures. So they actually know what resources they have when they're going to try to make joint decisions and whether the material, this is the key, whether the materials they're using to make those joint decisions to fulfill their spiritual aspiration of being a successful family for a long time, that each person has the materials in the way that he or she best absorbs them. One of my great Buddhist teachers taught me that preparation is useful if you want to wake up. Well, I think families can prepare themselves to wake up if they know how each other learns. That's a great um, skill. I also wonder, do you do any discussion about how do families receive um, love even? Because I would imagine that in as part of that learning, we're also interested in our family members. How do they appreciate what we do? What is their love language, so to speak? Yeah. I think that's absolutely critical. And in terms of resources, um, there's a remarkable book by a man named Kahane, K-A-H-A-N-E, called Power and Love. And this is not the place to absorb uh, or excerpt Mr. Kahane's brilliant book, but he makes it very clear that almost all relationships are relationships that involve power. I think he means authority, and I think that's a much better word than power, and love. And just example, one thing on power, he says, if you have power over, you'll make mistakes. If you have power to, you'll do much better. 
If you have love treacly love, it won't work. If you have courageous love, you reach high levels of true relationship. So one of the things that I love to do, Diana, is I love to have Mr. Kahane, not I've never met the man, but bring that remarkable book of love and aspiration to the understanding of human beings because he got it right. He got it right. Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. and we have him to love. I'm giving Mr. Kahane a hug. <laughs> Aww, love that. <laughs> so I know we're going to close out the podcast in a minute, and I'm going to cheat and combine two questions. So, Jay, you've been a mentor to so many of us in this field, and your legacy has, looms large. So my, my two questions are, what do you hope for those of us who are going to go on to serve ultra high net worth clients, what can we be doing better? And what legacy do you hope to leave? Well, Arden, I'm going to answer that this way. Um, it's been my privilege in this lifetime uh, to extend the mentoring role, professional mentoring role that was extended to me uh, 50 years ago or more when I went to the Coudere Brothers Law Firm, which is no longer exists in 1967. And what was interesting about that, and I think is important to share here, is we didn't talk of legacy, except in the Trust and States Department that I was in. We used legacy as a way of describing, which, which it does legally, a gift in a will to someone else. We talked then about a word called lineage. And we were talking in lineage from the perspective that profession, medicine, ministry, law, and high academia, the four noble professions have existed in human life. And we did discuss this, by the way, just this way. My father and I did many times. He was my great mentor, greatest lawyer I, I've ever known. We discussed the fact that the four noble professions, and I mentioned them again, ministry, medicine, law, and high academia, had come to life in human communities 100,000 years ago because their functions are what are needed for a human community to prosper. What are those functions? Medicine, looking after the mental and physical well-being of a community. Ministry, looking after the spiritual well-being of a community. High academia, what does it mean to be human in a human community. And law, who is interested in a safe, orderly place for human beings to wake up in? When these four functions of profession are functioning well, human communities thrive because people have a place to be safe and grow up in. We're in a very parlous time at the end of the 20th and halfway two decades into the 21st century in which the professions have fallen apart. They no longer perform their function. They become businesses when they can only, when they work, be practices. You both know this profoundly. You represent the highest of profession. And that's one of the privileges of being with you today. So Arden, the lineage that I would like to be speaking to is, is rebirthing the renaissance of profession in the four ways they must exist 
for a flourishing society. And I do want to say that the work that the two of you are doing is of the highest professional level in relieving suffering, sometimes some of the most difficult suffering imaginable. That is what medicine's purpose is. So lineage is the word I love, not legacy, not that legacy, but I like lineage because it's the line. You can hear the word that connects us to all of the teachers on whose shoulders we are sitting who made it possible for us to be here to join this experience today. Yeah, that's a lovely way to end. And I really want to thank you for your wisdom, your clarity, and what you really speak out of is your heart. So thank you. And thank you, Diana. And thanks to our listeners for Beyond the Balance Sheet for tuning in for another episode. We look forward to um, anybody who wants to leave a review or rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And we hope that you'll tune into our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.